Welcome to Stories of Recovery, a MAR Recovery Resources production from MAR Addiction Treatment Center. I'm Matt Shedd. Growing up gay in a community where that wasn't okay, Keith W. felt flogged, like something was wrong with him. When he found drugs and alcohol, he found relief. While drinking and using heavily, he made it through pharmacy school and even started his career as a pharmacist. He transitioned away from using drugs, but then had to drink even more heavily to make up for it. With the help of another pharmacist friend who was in recovery, he ended up at MAR for treatment, before eventually returning to his job as a pharmacist in a career that he loves. Here at the beginning, he explains a little bit about his growing up years and how his addiction progressed. Um, Yeah, I mean, growing up, uh, my parents were very religious. Um, We were the type of family that, you know, we went to church every Sunday. It didn't matter how you felt. You were getting up and getting dressed and going to church. Um, I personally never really cared for it. Um, But it was the one area that um, I would say my mom, mostly my mom, Um, My dad, you know, he was always proud of the fact that we would be involved with stuff at church. But my mom, that was really where, you know, she gave us praise the most was if you were in youth group or you were like doing these plays at church or you were in the choir, like that's really where um, any type of praise or like, um, not sure what I'm looking for, but like just the acknowledgement that, hey, this is my kid, I'm proud of. That's the only time I really felt like there was a sense of pride coming from them was when it was church related. Um, Because when it came to like school or, you know, any other aspect, um, there's a part of me that felt like, because growing up gay and, you know, I was, I was, I felt like we were taught that, you know, God doesn't, you know, like that type of lifestyle, you know, I felt flawed, basically. Um, She, my mom would try and force me and my brother to play sports, um, which we were never really good at. And it it was just this whole mask. I mean, it was just a mask. And that that relationship was was never perfect. Um, There was also some uh, history of sexual abuse. that kind of played into all of this as well. And I, and I talk about this at Mar with other people who are going through the same thing. Um, my drinking and using history was, um, when I was, when I, basically it, it ramped up. Um, I had my first drink at 16. Uh, my sister had um, given me and my brother some alcohol and, and it was the first time I actually felt like I fit in. And um, we were hanging out with friends. And I just remember thinking, wow, that was awesome. You know, and when is this going to happen again? But at some point, um, I kind of, there was a part of me that was able to pull back on that because I also wanted to focus on schooling. Um, And so I was able to, I guess, put that aside temporarily. But once I... um, turn, I guess I was about 20, 21. That's also, I, I, I told my mom that, um, I was gay and, and just like, you know, everything else, we ju- we're just not going to talk about that. We're not going to tell your father. We're just not going to talk about that. And so, you know, that just created a lot of shame 
for me. And so at that point, I moved out. I moved in with somebody I had been seeing at the time. And um, that just, that relationship was toxic from the beginning. And, um, and when I, and not that he's a bad person, I wouldn't say that, but that relationship was just toxic because there was a lot of drugs and a lot of alcohol and keeping this about me and keeping my side of the street clean, you know, there was a part of me that knew better, but there was also a part of me that was like, yeah, I want to, I want to do whatever it is that he's doing. And so that just kind of escalated, um, Basically, uh, it was mostly meth um, when I was in college. Um, every weekend was just a big bender, um, a lot of alcohol. And at some point after I graduated from uh, college, I realized, you know, now that, now that I have this degree, I can't be doing those types of things anymore. But I knew that alcohol was perfectly fine. And so I just ramped up my use from that. I basically, I had to drink enough to get to that feeling that I had when I was using those two other things together. And, and it eventually just, you know, it just, that, that relationship just ended. Um, I went from taking one hostage to another um, when it came to relationships. Um, and I just, the only way I could like, like treat the shame and guilt that I was feeling um, was to drink more alcohol. Um, and if I wasn't working, I was drinking, hands down. I mean, it was like toward the end, um, like on a day off, I would, I would wake up like slamming some Jaeger shots, you know, just a part of that also had to do with the fact that the withdrawals were so bad. Um, that I needed something quickly enough to kind of stop the shaking. Um, and then it was just, it was just constant from the time I woke up until I went to bed. And I remember on the mornings that I would have to go into work, I remember driving to work and thinking today, I'm not going to drink, you know, today I am not going to drink. And I meant that with my whole heart just to like have the closing of a day and like just kind of going through the, that obsession, the mental obsession and, you know, starting to feel a little better after a couple of hours of not having the alcohol. Um, I, I needed more. And, you know, I, it's, it's amazing how many pharmacy students, you know, have issues. Um, uh, but yeah, even practicing, like I was a pharmacy manager. Um, my boss had no idea because I was making, you know, all the numbers I was making, meeting all the quotas that they were looking for, you know, everything just looked really good on the outside, but like the inside, I, I, w I was a mess and, and I was fearful all the time. And, and a lot of, that looking good on the outside goes to a big thing that I struggle with today, which is perfectionism. You know, you need to see this. You don't need to worry about what's going inside, going on inside. You just need to look at what's outside. Everything looks good. You know, it's all nicely packaged up. You got the numbers that you want to see. Don't worry about the person who's actually doing it. So how did, how did that happen? How did you end up getting to Mar? Um, there was an intervention. I actually, believe it or not, I actually had a friend who's a pharmacist 
um, she had she had gotten caught um, taking pills from work, and she was kind of forced into a program. Um, and when I saw that she had gotten sober, and she was one of the people that I would hang out with and like go and party with and you know drink a lot with. She she got sober and she reached out to me and she asked if she could come and stay with me for a while until she got back on her feet. And um, and I was all, for, you know, I was all for it. Um, I lied to her and told her that, yeah, I've been sober. You know, things are good for me, too. And and I think a part of me really just wanted to um, see with my own eyes what it actually looked like. And so she came, realized I wasn't sober. Um, she still stayed and um, had another friend come over. They did an intervention, and that's basically what got me into MAR. Um, I it had gotten to the point where I was being uninvited from any, any event. You know, whatever was going on, I was not to be invited. And... Um, and that's what that's what I meant when I said when I when I went to Mar, it was basically just to get a few people off my back. You know, I didn't want to lose my friends. You know, all right, I'll try this thing. You know, I'll go in for ninety days and go back to work. Um, but uh, once I got to Mar, I realized that it's not quite so easy to go back to work in pharmacy. Uh, the board of pharmacy once once you're at Mar. Um, or any any treatment for that matter, any any type of a program. Once you go in, um, you have to notify the board within ten days, and um, and that was that was a shock to me. I'm like, why why am I having to notify the board? I'm like, I came in voluntarily, you know. And um, but I realized uh, it was almost kind of like at that point, like the gig was up, you know. So so we wrote this letter. Um, Rick wrote a letter sent it over to the board. Um, and then I thought, okay, well, I'll just wait my 90 days and go on back whenever. Um, come to find out the board sent a letter telling me um, that I couldn't go back to work for at least a year. They said, just take the time off, take it, take, you know, take a year just to focus on yourself. And Oh my God, I was so terrified. I'm like, this cannot be happening. This cannot be happening. I, I'm thinking every, like at that point, because I thought if I wasn't practicing pharmacy, like I thought my world was going to be crumbling around me. And slowly I learned that, you know, just because that's what I do for a living, it doesn't mean that's who I am. And and it took me a little while to get there, but I realized that at some point, and, you know, the, the board making that decision, that was, that was my higher power doing for me what I could not do for myself. And, and so what was your feeling about being at Mar um, with these people that were, you know, spiritual? spiritual and um, I felt like it was probably going to be more of the same of what I had been through um, when it came to religion. Um, I remember even... I think the first time I kind of broke down in our spiritual group was I it just didn't make any sense to me. Like even the what didn't make sense to me were the volunteers that were there who gave a crap about me. Like I did not get that. I didn't understand it. Um, 
it just it just didn't make any sense. I'm like, why would you honestly care what happens to me? It made no sense. And you know the fact and. I don't know. It's at some point I realized, you know, they're doing this for a reason, and it, and it wasn't always about me. It was more about, you know, what it was doing for them in the process. It's interesting. Like when you first come in, and it, like a lot of the guys that I see today, it's it's like they don't want to share a lot. They don't want to let people in with what's going on. And I was that person, and and I finally just I think I broke in that spiritual group. And and I remember it had something to do with my mom, and it probably was because of the whole religious aspect and not feeling accepted for who I was. And at some point, it, it and it's what we talk about in AA, allowing others to love you until you can learn to love yourself. And I think that that was that's really what it was about for me. That was my experience was I really did need those people to hold my hand. I needed them to love me until I could actually learn what it was about me that I, I did love because I felt like when I felt like I was just this, you know, terrible person. What was the, the relationship like with like Doug and Rick and Matt Irwin and all these guys that you were Ashley and the different counselors there? There was a part initially that I I kind of just thought of them almost like teachers in a class. You know, it's like they just come in, do their thing, they move on. The next one comes in, does their thing, moves on. Um, but a little over time, like it started to make sense as far as like, you know, why they're there. And Matt really pushed me hard. I mean, Matt, Dave Devitt, um, I would say initially, like in the first half of being in Halfway, like they were probably the bigger part for me. Um, I probably connected more with Dave Devitt um, than Matt. Matt seemed to come off to me as the one who was always trying to, to get me to express the anger. And um, because I was known as the nice guy. Like, I didn't want everybody knowing, you know, that I was seething underneath. And that eventually did um, come out. And I was, I took an anger management course. But Dave Devitt was, even though he, he, he can come off a little rough around the edges, there were some things that he he had said to me that, I don't know, just... The way he he said them, like it really made me feel like a whole person and that he really did care about what happened to me. Um, I remember being in a treatment team meeting and just saying things like, I don't want to lose my house. I don't want to, you know, have this happen. And he just he just looked at me and said, do you do you trust us? And I don't know why I said it, but I just said, yeah, you know, I've trusted you this far. I guess I do trust you. And um, to make a long story short, I did lose my house. And I think the growth there was just knowing that that was going to happen and that it was still somehow going to be okay. Like that wasn't going to be the end of, you know, everything in my life. Um, Another thing Dave had said to me at one point, and it was because I was struggling with the fact that I was gay and just really accepting me for who I was. 
and and he was the first person who and and I brought up the whole religious you know aspect of that and you know what my mom would always tell me and he just he told me he said God doesn't make mistakes you know he creates balance and you're part of that balance and that made me feel much better about myself like it even gets me today so I mean just to be told that you're that you are also a part of something bigger and not like you're you're not the one that's different you're just a part of that was that was important for me and I needed to hear that because it was something I had not gotten from you know from a family perspective um as far as Rick McCain goes I probably have the best relationship with him um as of today uh he was the one who I mean that relationship started out as he was the professional liaison um he was in charge of mirror group and and it kind of felt like that that teacher role initially but then it just you know it took on something different and um even today like i you know he he has taught me so much um when it comes to you know recovery and being able to talk about my feelings um he's i mean he's he's been a really big part of my recovery and then when you're living in community like that and then you've got people like Matt or whoever kind of challenging you to like well talk about what's bothering you it, it feels so raw to let out that like express that like was that something that you kind of had to grow into in terms of community life of being able more comfortable with confrontation and stuff oh like yeah that? that i mean that was super hard because you know when you grow up your whole life being taught we're just not going to talk about those things you know and just keep it you know we we don't want people knowing about that we don't want to be talking about that um it's yeah it's it's very uncomfortable especially letting a room full of guys that you're you know you're only there with temporarily even know. Um one of the things that was like I said talking about learning from examples of others um part of my treatment plan did not I mean my my treatment plan did not include going around and telling people one truth about myself. But I saw somebody else doing that. Um there was a there was a pilot that was in our community who was given the task of telling one truth about himself in every single group. And I thought that is such a great thing to do that I forced myself to do it in like every ARP group that I was in. Um so and I knew what I was opening myself up to because I saw the kind of feedback he was getting and they were brutal. It's it's almost like I think uh, and and one of the guys that was in that group said it best. He said, you know, when we come in we're we're like an oyster. You know, there there's this like really hard shell on the out, you know, outside and sometimes it has to get cracked open and and that's what those, you know, that the feedback is. It's like just cracking open that shell just a little bit until we can learn to just open up on our own. And I th- and I think taking on that task was was the biggest help I had at learning how to be vulnerable in a group. And with people I knew who I mean ev- eventually learned that they cared about me enough to listen. 
and and I, being willing to accept that harsh feedback, you know. But I also got to a place where I realized it wasn't meant to be, you know, hurtful. Like it really was designed to um, help me in a way that I couldn't see in that moment. Mm-hmm. There was a meeting that I was listening to yesterday, and it was talking about a fourth step. And how, you know, we talk about like in the four step, you have the the resentments, the fears and the sexual inventory. But one of the guy, the guy that was leading the group said, you know, but I also have my my sponsees put on there their secrets, because sometimes those secrets don't fall into any of those other categories. And for me, those secrets that we keep are what can be the most harmful. And just and and also it's talking about those secrets for me to me that felt like the ultimate surrender like that that to me felt like this is not something i am willing to hang on to i mean it it was huge for me to be able to do that and knowing that just because i did that just because i put it out there in a room full of people that can be you know can give some pretty harsh feedback you know what? I still came out alive. Like doing that, I didn't die in that process. You know, I still somehow came out okay with it. I didn't know how to have relationships with men because there was there was so much um, trust issues that I had. Um, you know, I mentioned growing up with you know a history of sexual abuse and that. And because that happened, it taught me that boundaries don't matter and that, you know, it's okay for people to, to do this. And whatever it was that happened, I felt like it was always my fault. Um, and that the other thing it taught me was that these are the types of relationships that you have with men. And so any any male relationship that I had, it was all, I I always had it in my head that there was a motive and that there was, there was some reason why this person was wanting to be with, you know, friends with me. Like they, they want something from me. That's how, that's how I felt my entire life. And, and there are even moments today where I still get that twinge, almost kind of a spidey sense of, I'm not sure I understand this, you know, what that this person wants something from me. And, and it's hard going through life like that. And, you know, but being in a community with other men, like, I learned how to have safe relationships with other men. And I knew what it was like to actually have true friendships. And not want something in return, you know, other than just another genuine friendship. Hey, that was hard to accept that you didn't want anything else other than just that. And and you said you stayed for the three quarters aftercare group for when you were done, all said and done was about 13 months, you said? So when I moved into three quarter and initially I wasn't even sure that I wanted to do that. Um, there was a period before I was about to leave halfway that, you know, I went home on a TL and it's not like I really needed to. I just had a couple of things I needed to check on. Um, 
And when I was at home, I realized that that was not going to work for me. I was living by myself and, you know, I went, I, I went back to Mar and I said, I, I, I know I cannot go back home. I knew, I knew if I went back home, I was going to drink. Like that's how not ready I was to go back home. And so, um, I, I went, you know, to three quarter and, and Doug even told me, he said, I was worried that you were just going to go home. He said, I was, I was worried that you were going to just up and leave and, you know, not commit to, he, I mean, he told me that I needed at least a year and he was right. You know, I mean, it would be nice. I envy anybody who can actually get sober just through AA alone. I, I, I am just in awe of anybody who can do that. And I knew that that was not going to work for me. I knew 90 days wasn't going to work for me. And, and it's weird, even though I say I knew, like the decisions that were being made, like there, there was, that let me know that there was a higher power involved because the decisions I would have made would have been to go home as soon as I could go back to work as soon as I could. I'm not going to lose my house. All of these things I thought were not going to happen, either did happen, or they happened to my favor. And, and I don't know why that is. They just did. Um, yeah, I mean, even, even like as far as like from the work standpoint, um, the board gave me a one-year consent order. Um, and, and what that means is that they would monitor me for a full year. Does that mean like drug tests and things like that? Yeah, yeah. They they wanted to just make sure that I was doing what I was supposed to, um, staying compliant, um, making sure that I'm taking care of myself. Um, that meant going to meetings, um, attending ARP. Uh, it also meant uh, doing the drug, the random drug testing. And um, I remember when it came time for my consent order to be up, I still, I stayed on the consent order, even though it was only for a year, I stayed on it for, I think like an additional six months, you know, at the request of Mar. Um, but like every other professional, man, let me just get off this thing. It is such a pain in the butt to have to go and find a place to do drug screens. But I was, it was, I was encouraged to continue doing those drug screens um, even though I wasn't on a consent order because I don't, I wouldn't even say, I think that there was some concern, but I also knew that Mar cared enough about me, um, to think that this was not such a bad idea. And I remember Doug went with me that day. And, um, when we went into the board, um, they asked, they said, why on earth would you even agree to do extra drug screens when you don't have to. And I just said, you know what? I said, I don't think Mar would suggest something um, that, you know, didn't make any sense. And I think that they suggested it because they care about me. And, and that was the end of it. They were like, okay. So I continued to do drug screens for, I think it was about an additional four and a half maybe five years. Um, and when I did um, want to see what it would be like without doing the drug screens, you know, that was something I processed in the groups. 
And um, just kind of the same way I do things now, even at eight years of being sober, like I still process stuff in the mirror group with Rick McCain and the new and the and the new people who come into the group. Like it's important for me to try and not figure out things on my own. And that's something I learned by being at Mar. And and yeah, that's something I've learned. Like I don't have to understand why it works the way it works, but for you know, whatever it is I've been doing for the past eight years, and I, I can't quite put my finger on which part of it is that's working. So I just continue to do everything that I've been taught to make sure that, you know, I'm at least staying on some correct path for me. And what's it been like now being in your occupation as a pharmacist sober? I mean, how has that been compared to what it was like before? Wow. I mean, just... You know, it's it's unreal. I, I I still can't believe how I was able to do this job before. When I look at how hard it actually is being sober, you know, I, I, I ask myself this question all the time. I'm like, how on earth did I ever get up in the mornings and make it into work and be able to do this? You know, and and the the boss I had who my, who was my district manager before this current one, he knew, he knew what was, he, he was the one who helped me get into treatment and he also wanted to keep me, um, with the company because he knew, I mean, he, he liked what he saw and I think he probably knew it could just be better if I got sober and not that that was ever brought up. But even when I would have my evaluations, I would just look at him. I said, you know, this is all only possible because I'm sober. I said, this would never be happening. The, you know, before it was just always about the numbers, but I'm like, look at this. This is only happening because I'm sober, because I'm waking up and I'm coming to work. And it's because I'm sober today. And he would just shake his head. Yeah, in agreement. So uh, last question, if you had one thing you could pass on to people from your experience, your hard-won experience, um, what would it be? Hmm. Don't give up so easily. I mean, you know, it's, it's not an easy road, but you can get through it. And one of the, some of the advice that I don't, well, I shouldn't say advice, but some of the things that I share in the mirror group, and this is something that I've, I've noticed that when I share it, it really sticks with people. And this is something that I got from my sponsor. And he says, and this has to do with doing the right thing. And it's sometimes you're faced with like choices. And when it comes down to those choices, you can either choose choice A or choose choice B, whatever you feel like might be the right decision and you might not even know in that moment but he just says if you don't do the next right thing just do the next thing right and that has stuck with me and i and i like the fact that it sticks with other people too because it makes a lot of sense you know sometimes we don't always make the right choice but if i decide to go with that choice i hope whatever it is i'll just do that right even if it wasn't the right initial choice Keith, thank you so much. This has been great. Uh, thank you, Matt. It was a great opportunity, and I really appreciate it. Thank you for letting me be of service. Absolutely. Thank you, Keith. Thanks for listening to Stories of Recovery, a Mar Recovery Resources production. I'm Matt Shedd. The executive producer for our show is David Tate, and Angela Edmonds is the associate producer. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.